0: Welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we are glad to have you with us. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I'm uh, uh, sitting in my studio today uh, and looking out on kind of a gray day, but I'm glad to be home because I was just at the uh, the, uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly, and uh, anyway, got in late last night. And if I sound like my, my mental faculties are not fully operational, that maybe because they're not, <laughs> but, uh, so the general anyway, I can do that to you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and <laughs> I, I'll have a few things maybe to say about the, the general assembly, but I want, I want to say this. I, I probably saw 20 people who listen to the podcast on a regular basis. They came up and said hello and, and, uh, thanked us for the show. And it was really, really marvelous. And, uh, so anyway, thanks a lot uh, to all the folks who were there in St. Louis, who came and spoke to me about the show. I appreciate your reaching out. Anyway, enough about me for now. Uh, Glenn, why don't you take, take it away?
1: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, and still not tired of saying that. Uh, <laughs> I am also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I've got a ministry called Every Sparange Ministries
0: that I run as well. Good stuff, good stuff. Tom?
2: Uh, Tom Price. Uh teach systematic theology, uh, Christian ethics, philosophy, and other things at a variety of places, one of which is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, I'm in the midst of some writing projects. Uh, more to come on that in due time.
0: <laughs> yeah, excellent, excellent. Speaking of writing projects, I know you have one you're working on, Glenn, or at least one. Uh, my Bombadil book uh, is moving along nicely. I just saw the forward that Brad Bierzer wrote, the historian from Hillsdale college who, you know, wrote uh, his own book on Tolkien and has a book coming out on the Inklings. But anyway, it was a marvelous, marvelous uh, forward. And I'm very pleased and I'm very grateful to Brad for doing that. Did you ever get
1: permission to use the title you wanted?
0: Well, I, my understanding is they're just going to roll ahead with it and just, you know, whatever happens, happens. It's, it was their call at the publisher. So, you know, I'm, I'm good with it. In fact, that's what I was hoping they'd do, but yeah. Anyway, I, I think talking to the the Tolkien estate is like speaking into like the void, you know, it just, it just, there's a lot of, there, there's probably a lot of things that they're involved with and you're just one more thing. And uh, so I think that what's going to happen is they're just going to publish it and hope for the best under, under that title. So the title is uh, going to be in the house of Tom Bombadil. Anyway, speaking of books, it's my day today, and I, I've been asked to, to uh, review a book uh, for a new publication called the American Reformer, and uh, and I'm really pleased to be have been asked to write for them. Uh, and they they gave me a book to review for my first uh, column there. I think I'm going to be a regular with them, but the 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 book is entitled "The Recovery of Family Life" by Scott Yenner, and. Uh, The subtitle is fascinating. It's uh, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. So uh, Yenner is a professor of political science at Boise State, and uh, he had uh, an an earlier book on family, but this one has made it quite a splash, and I've seen him uh, pop up now in different places. He had a a piece in the online edition. I think it was just on the online edition over at First Things, and uh, he had another piece over at the American Mind, which are both great places to be published. And um, anyway, I think uh, he's been more or less vetted as kind of a uh, a new sort of uh, authority on uh, the recovery of family life. So anyway, I want to talk about this book. In particular, I want to talk a little bit about ideology and then get into the book and you know, uh, quote, you know, read a few things, and then, like I told you guys before the show, there's plenty to respond to. there's you won't have any difficulty thinking of things to say. but um, let me begin with with uh, the uh, the assessment of the uh, of the book and, and more or less the you know the the assumption of you know behind the title. you know, the title implies that family life is, either under threat, or it's been eclipsed, or we've lost it, so we need to recover it. And uh, he attributes the loss to, obviously, ideologies. And uh, so, for example, here's a a paragraph from the third chapter, and uh, the title of the chapter is Contemporary Liberalism and the Abolition of Marriage. Now, there you go, so here now sometimes I think that the people out there in Peoria or Tubunk <laughs> think that people like us, who are conservatives who are familiar with trends in the academy are alarmist <laughs> and overreacting, but actually we' we're, we're not uh, there's plenty of material that uh, we can draw on to help uh, sort of uh, illustrate the hostility uh, that uh, many of our colleagues in the academy. Feel toward things that most people think are great. And one of those things is marriage. So here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a quote. Uh, this is from, as I said, page 39. Feminists would abolish marriage and the family to create a world beyond gender. Contemporary liberals criticize marriage and family life in the name of moral neutrality or a state that refrains from legislating morality, or more broadly in the name of autonomy or choice. Feminists speak about about an indefinite future and the independent woman, while contemporary liberals would secure autonomy and relational diversity. Contemporary liberals provide the justification for a complete independence for women and children from marriage. These different frameworks, while analytically separable, have become one through, uh, though, uh, in a tense amalgamation. So what he's saying is that there's a kind of uh, mutual reinforcing uh, relationship between these different ideologies. He just identifies two at this point, feminism and liberalism, uh, but, they're, but they're not entirely compatible. There is a kind of tense relationship between the two. We can talk a little bit about that, but anyway.
1: Yeah, Chris, one of the things that I think uh, should also be noted here is the influence of the New Left on all of this. Um, because the New Left is, is one of the things that's influencing later waves of feminism. Um, it also certainly influences LGBTQ stuff, and it is prominent in the academy and in liberal politics. Um, the New Left argued that, um, they combined sort of uh, Marx filtered through Gramsci with Freud, and so you get this kind of Freudian Marxism that says that in order to reach the promised land, the, you know, the coming perfect utopia, you have to break down all of the institutions that support bourgeois society because all those institutions do is exist to preserve the status quo. And the foundation of all that is family. So they very self-consciously said, we really need to take out the nuclear family. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so exactly. I think that's underlying both of these trends that
0: you see here. Right, that comes through very strongly in another another place that uh, you know Yenner uh, addresses, and that's a uh, here with a Firestone's dialectic of sex: the case for feminist revolution, which was published in 1970. Which, by the way, is right about the time the New Left really came onto the scene very strongly. Mm. Yeah, um, but anyway, it was. Uh, there are, are just a number of things I could read here that just are just mind blowing in terms of the, uh, I guess the, the insouciance with regard to, you know, uh, the casual dismissal of so many things that we've relied on forever, <laughs> you know, motherhood, you know, uh, men taking an interest in their children and providing for them all those things that we think of as being necessary for a, for a healthy society. But, you know, in, in the end, what uh, she's really, what she's uh, actually calling for uh, is something that's very much in keeping with the transhumanist uh, project. Uh, you know, in other words, uh, what you have is an approach toward the physical world, which takes nothing as given and, uh, uh, you know, perceives the natural world and its and its structures as just simply, well, so much material uh, that uh, we can can work on and, and rearrange and change to f- suit our own fancies. Um, anyway, uh, if, if folks are interested in, you know, seeing these, uh, quotations, which, uh, make your hair stand up, uh, you can just look at the first chapter, uh, on feminism and the abolition of gender. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I think, all that stuff is is good to keep in mind. What I want to do, though, is I want to jump to the subtitle because I think the subtitle uh, is uh, really uh, remarkably important. So the first part of the book, um, Yenner essentially, you know, sur- surveys the lay of the land. He says this is what feminism, liberalism and and the sexual revolution have been up to. And so there's a lot of stuff that I think folks uh, out there in podcast land would be familiar with in terms of you know stuff that they see in the news, but they won't be familiar with uh, you know you know sort of the roots of this stuff and just how uh, forthright these people are in terms of their agenda and and how radical they are. Um, by the way, the word rad- radical comes from the Latin, which means to go to the root. Uh, so radicals really do go to the root of things. And in the in the ca- in what we're talking about here is uh, an approach that takes nothing for granted, that takes, uh, you know, any sort of uh, resistance or defeat or, or or failure to to bring about the kind of the the world that they would like to see brought into being, not as a as some some lesson to be learned about what's possible and what's not, but more or less, a, you know, sort of a uh, demonstration that that these you know, vile and evil structures are even more deeply rooted in our psyches than, than we thought before. And, and instead of learning anything, they just double down, you know, they just work harder. They get more radical and try to go, you know, try to get at your kids earlier. So (laughs) I don't know, you know, you know, they're already, they already have access to your kids in nursery school. Uh, Maybe they want to get access to your kids just in the womb. I don't know, but, but, but I think that uh, that's important to kind of have in the background as we think about this. But ideology, what's, let's talk a little bit about that. What is an ideology? I think that a lot of folks use the term ideology as a synonym for philosophy. And I think uh, that is in, 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 uh, 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 not the correct way to think about ideology. I, I do think that there are, ide- uh, there are philosophies that lend themselves to you know, sort of providing a, a fertile ground, you know, uh, in, within which a uh, or on which uh, ideologies can grow. But there are our philosophies that are anti-ideological as well. So I, I, I can see you guys are nodding. You probably have some <laughs> thoughts on that. Uh, what 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 do you have to contribute to that? <laughs>
2: Well, I, I was thinking a, a recent work, and I, I don't have the re- uh, author with me. I, that's why I'm bobbing my head around. I'm trying to find the actual book. But it was, it, the, the title of the book is called Our Shadowed Present, um, and it was actually looking at the nature of, of historical, you know, his, history and, and the historical in, in this kind of postmodern context. And it has a whole chapter on the making of ideology, and it kind of unpacks you know the relationship of the way, oftentimes we even conceive the historical now as inseparable from the ideological. Um, but but I think I mean one of the things you get with ideology is the kind of lifting up out of reality into a kind of a detached ideal, not a, a, a realizable goal, but a detached ideal, and then that becomes oppressive. On the whole, because it basically comes down, and, and it's like a you know a Procrustean bed, if you will, that forces all of reality to fit within its narrow interpretive parameters.
0: It might, be, so good because, little, uh, it might be good to give a little. might be good to give a little definition of Procrustean bed. I know what it means. <laughs> you no, know, Glenn knows what it means. But uh, tell us, tell us, Tom, what does it mean? Well, per- percu- Procrustus, if I could get
2: it out, was known <laughs> for what? chopping off the limbs to fit them into to the the bed uh, someone may i don't i don't recall all the details of the story if any of you remember the,
0: the details of it uh, yeah it uh, you, you had it you had it right basically i've got a bed that's only so big and if you don't fit we'll yeah. cut you down to size yeah. <laughs> and
1: and he claimed to um the bed would fit anybody that's
0: right. and so <laughs> so if you were too big you
1: lost things and if you were too small yeah. he kind of Hold you apart,
0: stretched you out. <laughs> yeah, so, so this problem goes way back. This is not yeah. <laughs> strictly a contemporary problem. People have been doing this sort of thing forever, but but I do think that we live in a time where we're where we're uh unable to philosophize in the ways that are you know you know more akin to what people did in, in antiquity. And yeah. really, a lot of a lot of philosophy today is ideological in character. So I I, I do think that yeah. the uh, the mistake of of equating ideology with philosophy is understandable because most contemporary philosophers are ideologues. But yeah. but there is a, a, a way of thinking about reality that doesn't lend itself to, to ideology, and and it begins with what is uh, what you could call uh nature you know what what have we been given uh what is natural and working within the framework of nature uh now that is something that ideologues you know just uh i don't know it makes their hair stand on end. when a guy like me says something like that they'll say you're an essentialist and i'll say yeah i'm yeah i am (laughs) 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 but
2: but maybe we can pull that out a little bit well, that's really where where you know where the big break goes, doesn't it? Eventually, I mean, all the way back thirteenth, fourteenth century, when you're, when you're basically moving away from this, that there are essential natures that have distinct, um, you know, uh, characteristics and functions and goals, to a loosening of that, and then everything automatically starts to become functional. Um, and, and so, I mean, even in theology, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, God pro me, um, uh, you know, what, what theology helps me achieve social justice, right? So theology isn't about God and all things in relation to God ordered the right way and our love's the right way. It becomes a, a, a ideological project for constructing a view of reality and God all the way down to achieve this particular, um. You know, ideological aim, um, and so th- so this does uh, infect everything, um, and and we see as as history starts to become conceived differently, or or let me think of it here. This is an easy way to break it down. Two big threads running through to the present moment um, probably breaks from thirteenth fourteenth century on. One is naturalism, which basically you have a machine that um, has taken away all uh, es- essences and natures from the world and basically made them functions um, for survival. And so you have this kind of development within combining c- combinations of a machine that's kind of interlocked and just – it's pure pure natu- nature like a, c- a clock, and, and it's just – not organized by anyone just chance and it's just running and everything that is 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 a byproduct of that or you have the other the kind of organic um type of picture in which everything is one big chain of becoming and so you know consciousness is kind of um you know the spirit realizing itself through time and so you do have teleology do you have purposes you have natures but they're fluid and they don't have any essences. They are only tied to what the combination of things you're related to at any given moment. Like think of the the fruit in the organic garden, right? Um, and so so you have that, and then everything is in development towards some kind of fuller realization. And so you do have a teleological picture, and you do have things more than just functions. But they're so fluid that there there isn't anything that's solid and a solid grasp, and so marxism is a flip version of that it's not heading towards um a sort of spirit realizing itself but sort of just a a dynamic of nature reaching some kind of i guess stasis or or some kind of something (laughs) um you you know equilibrium and yeah i think i think uh,
0: equilibrium is a good way to put it yeah and so
2: so everyone at this point, I mean, I, you know, Marx wanted to kind of get rid of ideology because he felt it lended towards that, that, that picture I'd mentioned just before, that there was some kind of spirit goal, consciousness, this kind of super consciousness that we're, we're arriving at that's going to give some kind of meaning to the whole. And for him, it was just ec- economic and social well-being. Um, and that was kind of, for him, that was, re- that was connected to nature enough.
0: Well and too you know he he thought of ideas as essentially e- e- ephemera that just kind yeah. of floated on these the kind of the, the, the substructure of economic forces uh but yeah, at the same that time that trace
1: I- is an interesting question where did his ideas come from
0: yeah, That's right that's right Yeah <laughs> they they <Right>. always transcend <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but but this you know there are a lot there are, I think a number of ways that we can kind of uh, get to this uh you know, matter of, uh, ideology and how it functions, uh, in terms of its, you know, its growth. But I do think, you know, we do find ourselves at a particular moment where it seems to be, uh, working more in a, in a way, uh, that, uh, ha- you know, has, uh, it reflects a, in one sense, a kind of Marxist way of thinking about the material world, but also a kind of Gnostic approach to reality.
2: Yeah, where yeah.
0: you know our, our minds are sort of just floating uh, and our, our will this is sort of, I guess Nietzsche would be the person to think about in this respect uh, to that which which imposes you know form and structure on a essentially structureless reality and one of the things that I think that it would have been good in the book um, Jenner's book to do is I, I I think he would have been I, I it would have been great if he would have provided a definition of ideology. <laughs> now, at the very end, he does get to, uh, in his final uh, section, uh, basically the assumption that's underlied the entire book. So let me just uh, read this, and this is very much in keeping with what we've been talking about. So this, I think, is is his understanding of ideology, even though he doesn't uh, you know, front load it. It comes at the end. He says, Francis Bacon or Rene Descartes We're not thinking about modern feminism, sexual liberationism, and transgenderism at the birth of the modern, yet the idea of human power and the idea of nature as there to be controlled through human action, stripped of qualifying moderation, uh, eventuated in these late modern ideas. Nature, on the modern view, as it comes to us, does not lend direction to human will or human action it is the stuff out of which human beings can make their future. And then he adds, no limits, kind of yeah. as a, you know, sort of a, mm-hmm. aside side. So he, then he goes on to say feminists and their. Uh, well, he goes on to talk about, you know, things we've already talked about, how uh, feminists strive to separate gender from sex and then and so forth. But yeah. I think uh, that's, I think, a pretty good way of thinking about uh, how ideologies come into being. If 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 this is simply uh, a world that is matter in motion that surrounds us and has no sort of moral content, and this is of course a theme that we in, on the podcast have returned to again and again and again and again. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, then uh, philosophies of life, which would include feminism and so forth, are strive to impose structure according to the will our wills of the people who do the philosophizing and they're necessarily stupid then because instead of learning from you know uh you know their engagement with the with the world uh as it is they just simply double down as i noted earlier uh and work harder and try uh to you know do what they are up to in a more sort of I guess uh, reckless and desperate way. And one of the ways he talks about this in the course of the book, and this is, a, he's got a number of really helpful images that he uh, introduces in the book. But one of those is something he refers to as the rolling revolution. <laughs> so yeah. uh, feminism, liberalism, uh, the sexual, uh, revolution, they're all rolling revolutions and almost Sisyphus-like, you you know, they, they never actually get to the goal because the goal is impossible to achieve. And so things just keep rolling forward. And, uh, anyway, and so everything is qualified by not yet. We'll get there. You know, we need to work harder, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Anyway.
1: One of the interesting things about ideologues is they constantly accuse Christians of trying to impose their values on society and say you can't do that but they seem to have no qualms about imposing their own yeah they they rather remind me of Winston Churchill's quote about fanatics he says a fanatic is someone who can't change the subject and excuse me who can't change his mind and won't change the subject
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, I think that's that's a good one Yeah, yeah we have to remember that one yeah, yeah. I, you know, to, to that to that point, I think that, that sometimes um, Christians behave like ideologues. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost as though they believe that the Bible imposes uh, a structure on a meaningless world. Um, yeah, they, they 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 seem to they they seem to miss uh, the the. the the Bible's own disclosure that the, the world itself has been made by God and comes front loaded with meaning <laughs> and that, yeah. and that the Bible is actually working with that meaning is it's in it's, it yeah. helping us to see it maybe in deeper ways than we, we could otherwise.
2: That's, that's right. I mean, I, I think that that's one of the, um, you know, I always talk about the shift that had happened somewhere in Western history where this, this conception of God, basically as, as sheer will forcing imposing a will on a on a creation that otherwise is basically um would 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 kind of go its own direction out of its own will and therefore you have this contest of wills and so yes christianity in that context takes the bible as sort of a as a revelatory positivism where it is just asserting that kind of voluntaristic view of 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 god is basically just just imposing a will um, and it's very different than the actual reality vision that Scripture itself sets forth. Um, and, but, and, and when we start to read the kind of life-givingness and the, the beauty and depth attached to that created order and its form that the heavens declare the glory. And, you know, this is, this is a much richer and enlivening picture, a beautiful picture to live in. And one of the things uh, I notice, you talk about the real rolling revolution, is really you know what starts back in in, in the imagery of the garden, right? Um, where you know where basically um, breaking into a relationship that God's good form ordained in that crea- you know the creation of the world and the in, in the ord- ordaining it its natures and purposes. Once that becomes a friction for humans because of the fall and they start to see that now not as something to accord with and flourish with, but now, you know, um, pain has entered into, you know, childbearing and, and the consequences of sin have entered into these good forms. And rather than, you know, as scripture says, oh, you know, conform to the good gift of the law to which brings us back into accord with these forms so that we can flourish and be blessed, we rebel against them, the law and them, and therefore we, we see them as something to be liberated from. Not as where our beatitude lies. And this is this contrast the psalmist who says, look, we meditate he meditates, he's blessed, he's flowing with life, and his family's flowing with life. He's like a tree planted by the river. And in God's law does he meditate both day and night, right? Compare that with the anger of the nations, right? Um, so you re- you really have these contrasting views. And this is just, I mean, it, it's not much different than what you see at the at every university and school now. Just absolute rebellion against those, those basic forms, you know, what's best for the family, uh, married, husband, one woman, one man married for life, the, they, you know, the, the, all this stuff. Now, what they do recognize to their probably ignorance is that those forms are imperfect, <laughs> right? They are under the conditions of the fall, and yet, that for them, the only solution is basically to be liberated from them. They are something that um, is, is repressive and holds us back from our own imposition of our will. And so what they do is they use the imperfection as an excuse to get rid of the whole thing. So, okay, because in patriarchy, somebody happened to abuse that role. Therefore, patriarchy itself is nothing but one big abusive role to be delivered from. And so you see this kind of endless battle and war against these these kind, the fact that sin may exist in something which they take. Is, I mean, think of it right now with in Europe, you know, European influenced cultures. I mean, because people that happen to be of certain descent did things that were less the noble and sinful, therefore everyone has to be guilty of it if they have any associate association with it whatsoever and so there happens to be a whole innocent group of people they're the ones trying to be freed from that influence
0: yeah i think that's a great subject for another show i think that uh we should probably at some point address uh the practice of uh well of uh of attributing guilt uh you know to classes you know I mean, we have yeah. talked a little bit about the that scapegoat before. yeah yeah so uh related to this um Jenner is approaching you know the the subject of nature as a political scientist I'm not a big fan of the term political science I, I like the old political you know philosophy you know better yeah. but anyway he, yeah. he didn't invent his uh, title he <laughs> he was just put there <laughs> and he does and he, and he's clearly uh, you know well read and familiar with the the, the you know the, the landscape of the you know the world of philosophy but um, he in order to introduce a, a kind of a, you know, a set of limits um, and that's what we're getting at here. You were saying that the world comes preformed. There are certain things that are simply not subject to our, uh, wh- you know, whims uh, and programs. Uh, and therefore uh, let's, you know, sort of uh, identify these limits and that's what the, the subtitle says, exposing the limits of modern ideologies. And, and one of the ways he does that is he talks about nature. Now he's approaching nature, not so much from a sort of Christian framework, he's more approaching it from more of a pragmatic, you know, sort of way of, you know, discussing the matter. And he, he introduces what he calls the groove of nature. So the idea with the groove of nature is that, uh, nature and, um, you know, nature, when, it, when we talk about, you know, sexual uh, characteristics, you know, you know, primary and secondary sexual characteristics and so forth, these things are just simply real. <laughs> you know, as Christians, we talk about them as givens because we yeah. do believe that a God has given these things to us. But he's not using that language. He's just saying, this is, these, these are the grooves. And then gender is a, a way that a culture uh, works in the grooves to help men and women relate to each other, for example, in a positive way.
1: Now, that's, that's the original distinction that was made between sex and gender. Gender is what you get when sex intersects culture. Unfortunately, they've changed the definition. You know, and this has happened with multiple different things. Definitions of racism have changed over time and so on. And they keep getting pushed in a more and more, well, ideological direction. So that gender is no longer, gender is a social construct, by which they mean sex distinctions are really a social construct. They've they've collapsed the two into each other again, when the initial separation of sex and gender actually is kind of an interesting thing from the perspective of social sciences and other science that I'm not really sure about. Um, but, you know, from looking at anthropology, looking at sociology, looking at history, that original distinction of what does, what does it mean to be a man in a culture? What does it mean to be a woman in a culture? That's an interesting and valuable question to explore. But the way the trend has gone is, once again, gender, like I said, gender has collapsed back into sex and it becomes something that is, doesn't perform a social function. It's purely psychological.
0: Yeah, I think that idea that it's purely psychological is is where most people. One of the things that just astonishes me is that you know arguments for you know sort of the uh, the social benefits of um, of kind of traditional family life are lost on people over the last ten to fifteen years. I mean, when I was younger uh, in the in the eighties and nineties, they still were salient. I mean, you could still say children need a father, you know, uh, you could still say things like, um, you know, uh, women, uh, bear children <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's, it's, it's important for them to, to, uh, to be united to the man who, uh, you know, sired the child, <laughs> stuff like that. Now that just is lost on people, even people in in our churches, which is just yeah. astonishing to me because people can't, they, they, they're unable to think, you know, we've talked a little bit about functions and how, you know, we went from essences to functions, but we can't even talk about functions anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've yeah. lost even that kind of language. So when you talk about just simply something as I think commonsensical as the, as the examples I just, you know uh enumerated uh people kind of freak out you know then you ask them well what what do you propose and it and they don't have any proposals it's completely about the autonomy of the individual you know hell or high water you know come what may who cares or the government will pay for it or whatever yeah
2: yeah, well, it, it, there is that. Um, I mean, that's you know, it, it, the uh, I think I think of Dave Bentley Hart's article, "Christ or Nothing," uh, uh, or "Christ and the Nothing," and that, that's his very point. I mean, and once once Christianity kind of rid the world of 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 all all of the threat of of non gods, if you will, nihilism becomes the replacement. It's the it's it's, and that really is what do I mean by nihilism here? I don't necessarily even mean you know, any particular philosophy so much as this, but this notion that the human choosing from nothing other than themselves, right? Whether you consider this as kind of spontaneous um, ex nihilo creation out of your own resources, it's not really ex nihilo, but that's the way they conceive it, or whether it's something that just um, picks in accord with who you think you are, what you feel you are. Um, But there is nothing Governing that choice. And so for them, what makes something good or bad, right or wrong, is the fact that we freely choose it, not whether or not there's some measure for it or some form it needs to correspond to. My my students over, you know, one of the Catholic schools I teach bioethics, Um, almost inevitable on their case studies they will tend to pick one either on uh, euthanasia or abortion and at the end of the day they all by default end up with the perspective but human autonomy they find that little note in there the dignity of human autonomy and they assume that that oh that trumps everything else that that person's say is 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 all that should finally matter um not whether something is is good or bad and, and i constantly remind them that The whole point of the Christian moral tradition is to place a question mark over whether that choice in and of itself is enough. And I think there's no pushback in the church to that at all.
0: No, no, there's not. And uh,
1: and you see the same sort of thing in um, uh, what passes for sexual ethics now. As long as it's consensual, it doesn't matter what you do. If it's consensual, it's perfectly fine.
0: Yeah, Yenner does a good job of addressing the problems with that when it comes to consensual matters, you know, because obviously people can have second thoughts, say, you know, sort of, I didn't mean it back when I said yes, you know, stuff like that. So uh, it's not as firm a ground as people uh, are assuming that it is. And where do the lines fall? There are lots of ways that in our society we don't uh, give people the freedom to be the arbiters of reality, uh, you know, when it comes to just everyday matters, like stopping at a stoplight, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, the meaning of the stoplight is not, you know, within the uh, purview of the, of the person behind the wheel of the car. In other words, it's meaning. (laughs) It just (laughs) is. And, and now, although some people in Connecticut think that, (laughs) (laughs) well, but that, that, but that's, but that's a good point because that does introduce, I think an important distinction between, you know, various (laughs) kinds of limitations um, yes. well, I thought you were going to say it introduces an important distinction between Connecticut
1: drivers and everybody else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, may, maybe the breakdown of law is spreading, and, and we because and, I just saw I saw some of this out in St. Louis just this past week. <laughs> but but uh, there obviously are things there are there are limitations that are mm-hmm. instituted by human beings, so there, there are po- there's positive law. So, you know, natural law and positive law uh, are distinguished between uh, the fact that positive law is, is law that we institute as human beings and natural law is just simply the way things are. And now natural laws um, can be broken. Uh, it's not as though, because you know, like I think sometimes when people think of natural laws, they think of things that uh, uh, function like gravity. You know, that's a natural yeah. law, but, yeah. but we're not talking about that kind Laws of, of nature, law of yeah. nature, right? We're talking yeah. about natural law in the sense that in order for a person to be truly happy, uh, to be, to, to live a life that, uh, is genuinely satisfying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are certain things that have to be present, uh, for example, other people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you know and that, and that is part of the natural law that you've got to, uh, interact, uh, in you know ways with other people that are mutually beneficial uh mm-hmm. if you don't you're going to either be lonely or you're going to be miserable because other people are are harming you so well, that's an example of a natural law
2: well uh interesting point there because i think Jenner brings this up I, I i don't i haven't read this whole i do have this book i haven't read it all yet i, I did hear a lecture he gave i think uh at the american mind i listened to um and I think one of the things, I think it was him who was talking about, but he was talking also about the, that sh- the short-sightedness of this, this kind of feminist and, and uh, lines, and of course the, the um, same with the, the left, um, this, this kind of disqualifying of one of the things that's a core aspect of, of h- human beings in families is the, the, the future. Um, both as community and and for for the individuals and and for for civilization and society. And so these huge things, different periods of time, had a much stronger um, conscious, you know, awareness of, if you will, Um, maybe not in every way, but at least, you know, the next generation or the next couple of generations, and and the investment of the present in that future versus the presentism of of today, where the now is everything, and so you can do away with the past because you don't have you don't have a concern really for the next generation. What you're wor- really worried about is is um, you know this this he- the here and now, the getting everything here and now, and um, and I think yeah, this I, th- is something I think that's
0: one. When- Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the ironies of the of, the, of you know the, the ideology uh, that uh, you know sometimes is, is referred to as progressivism. It's really not about the future; it's about the it's about the the present moment, kind of yeah. maximizing you know human autonomy in the present, even at the expense of the future. Um, yeah, you know there are all, there are a number of ways that we are extracting the resources, and this sounds odd, but we're extracting the resources, the future, to pay for our indulgence in the moment. You know, yeah. I'm I'm reminded of uh, 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 John Maynard Keynes, who's uh, he was. You know, when he was talking about you know Keynes when he's talking about his his economic uh, theories. Someone asked him, "What about the long run?" And he said, "We're all dead in the long run." In other words, yeah. let's just go for as much as we can get now and let now. the future take care of itself. And yeah. um, now there are some some places where. I know you know the the forces of uh, the poli- of political correctness uh, do uh, recognize the importance of the you know of, of preserving uh, you know resources for future generations. I'm taking in particular a lot of the talk surrounding the the the, yes. uh, the environment. You know, for example. Yeah. But yeah. when it comes to the social environment, these people are completely uh, you know. Uh, anarchists, It seems like
2: well, this is um, where that dis- disconnection happens, and, and and this is what I always said. I said, uh, I mean, a, 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 you know, um, I mean, in general, one can see why a true conservative would be interested in conserving um, as as well, um, and, and but but for someone who destroys pretty much the uh, the forest of the family and everything else, that is probably the most proportioned and balanced way of not harming the present moment in so many ways, um, even in terms of the environment. It, it, it is this bizarre relationship. And and, and there again, I, I understand the motivation tends to, to be sinister and ideological, um, but I do probably think there are some out there who, who really do have a, a heart for, for nature and, and its sustenance. But, they, you know, I mean, they have made the connection between the the um, lifestyles of, of the progressives in the sense of um, that they have taken the kind of capitalist world and run wild with it and yet now come and chase everyone else for trying to, to kind of live within their means within it as if anyone connected to it is all evil and bad. But there, you know, we, we were talking about destroying complete Places um, just for for its exploitation and the like. So I mean, you, you, you can see how they could measure. Okay, lifestyle and environment impact are related, <laughs> but they get the, the the analysis completely out of sync and and put the emphasis in the in the wrong places. And so you know, um, and and I, I I think we've all often said I think doing a a properly Thick description, Christian understanding of the importance of the environment in relationship to the whole Christian vision is, I think, a, a task at hand.
1: Right. And, right. and that's actually something that uh, is worth paying attention to when we go to people like Tolkien. Oh, who, yeah. Who's, yeah, he's, he, who's very, he's, very much concerned about those kinds of issues.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I remember one time Russell Kirk was uh, invited to. Uh, a debate in which uh, environmental regulations or whatever were going to be uh, discussed, uh, argued about, and uh, he said, "Okay, what am I? What am I? Uh, what am I against?" And uh, the, uh, the the person who invited him to the debate said, "You're against the environment." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, Kirk said, "I, I, I I'm, that's not what I'm going to defend. I'm not going to defend." You know, you know the, the, the spoilation of the natural world. Um, I think that uh, you know one of the things that you know related to this particular matter is obviously we've got to take up space, we've got to make a, a, a place for ourselves in the world, and then the question of how do we do that in a way that is both uh, you know good for people and good for you know the rest of the creation is a really good matter to think about and discuss. So, yeah. you, you know, we've got people. Like Gordon Wilson, who's a friend of mine, who wrote a book, A Different Shade of Green, and he's in that book uh, discussing, the, you know, biodiversity and its importance and why we need to be concerned about, uh, you know, what's happening to species and their extinction and stuff like that. So I, I I'm all, I'm, I think that's that's great. The, the the trick is is holding these things together, and and I think you're right, Glenn. You know, people like Tolkien, people like Russell Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rod Dreher, he wrote that book, Crunchy Cons, uh, a number of years ago. I think that was like his first big book. And um, in that book, he's trying to lay out a fully conservative yeah. way of life, you know, that yeah. tends to these, these different matters uh, and sees their connections. But, um, another kind ahead. of example that we can look
1: at is one that's sort of near and dear to my heart as a historian, and that's national debt. Mm-hmm. Um, great powers yeah. have always historically been sunk by out-of-control spending. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But uh, I just did a quick calculation using the U.S. national debt clock. And uh, if I crunched the numbers correctly, if we were to pay back the national debt at a rate of one dollar per second, it would take us over nine hundred thirty four thousand years. Wow. Well,
0: let's just hope that we can pay it back quicker than that.
1: Yeah. But the, the fact of the matter is we 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 think that. Spending that kind of money for our current needs, ignoring the impact on future generations, we think somehow that this is a
0: good idea. Yeah, and we also uh, are failing to create future generations. You know right. the well—that's you know, that was the connection I was trying to. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Populations in decline all over the world. And uh, so we're creating debt uh, that's going to be crushing uh, for a range of reasons, not just simply because it's so. Large, but also because the population is going to be smaller. So, right. you know, that has to be taken into consideration. Now, now the, the people who think that everything is just going to be fine, you know, or, or, you know, tell us that you know we'll have robots and uh, that you know we won't need to worry about any of this stuff because you know we'll be so much more productive in the future. Da 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 da. But your point, I think, is well taken, Glenn. This is stuff. This is stuff that's happened before. This is not like we're not. And this is one of the things about about the eradication of the past. That is so troubling. Uh, Mm -hmm. People just simply do not know anything about, I mean, they don't even know, uh, you know, what life was like, you know, when there was a Soviet Union. I mean, that recent, that recent, uh, you've got young people who have zero clue that uh, there was such a thing as a Soviet Union. And we should have learned a lot of lessons about communism based Mm on what people within that political order suffered. But, it is the case that we live in a world that's just very present-oriented, not thinking about the past nor the future, and not thinking about the, the world uh, as something that can inform, uh, you know, how we go about living. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking the, about the natural world.
1: Yeah, the example of communism is interesting there because I think the current interest in socialism and communism and so on is really built around the idea that it's a kind of neo-gnosticism again, from a bit of a different direction. It's built around the idea that our ideas about how things should work trump the reality of what does work. And it trumps history, it trumps experience, it trumps everything. This is just the way it should be, and so we're going to put it in place, even though it has failed uniformly every place it's been tried, because it violates nature, violates human nature.
0: Right yeah. right yeah well this this brings us to the, the the part of the book that I'd like to spend the the balance of our time talking about and that's the way forward so uh Jenner talks about you know so the, the the problems with these different ideologies helps to you know demonstrate you know how they conflict with each other how they're they're full of internal uh, inconsistencies how they run up against reality and and can't seem to learn anything in the process so he he's he's dealing with all of that and then uh, he he gets to the point in in you know the, the story uh, or in the in the course of the books where he says okay well what are we going to do now and that's where we get the title recovery of family life now the trouble is that um, if we are going to uh, live within our limits um, there's a very important institution that needs to do the work of encouraging living within limits in a limited way <laughs> and that's <laughs> the government in other words it, it, it's it, it's not gonna it, we're not gonna be saved by some dictator who comes around and just forces us to do the right thing we need yeah. to have uh an approach to promoting um life within limits in a limited way and yeah. and and Yenner. uh discusses uh how to do that by uh dis- dis- describing a, a way of act, you know government uh, legislating uh through uh indirection or indirectly so instead of the government saying okay you know like we see in china uh you can't have this many kids uh you know you can't have more than one or two or whatever the limit is today or you got to do yeah, this I mean, or that you know in terms of how you raise your kids uh the government uh can encourage certain kinds of behaviors indirectly and discourage yeah. other kinds of behaviors indirectly um, yeah. and it has to unless we want to live in some kind of totalitarian scheme yeah yeah
2: yeah I mean I mean you see again it, I mean you see you kind of can see this go in sinister directions or you could see it in 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 a healthier directions I mean we see you can see certain things go up. <laughs> Um, or get a, a extra taxes because they want to. They want to kind of clamp down on certain things. Family travel, for example. Um, you know, uh, any anything that you know. I mean, Connecticut is constantly <laughs> uh, ushering in tax upon tax upon tax that crushes certain right. behaviors. So you want to you right. want to slow down people from having larger families um, who can barely take two children on vacation. Um, you know, keep keep putting a burden from every direction on them. Um, very indirectly, this is coming through a you know a certain kind of tax here, a certain kind of toll here, and eventually it adds up to the point people can't you know can barely survive if they they have you know more than a couple kids. Um,
0: right. You know, like I think that you know when we think about indirection, there's there's of course you know the the, the 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 approach that you just described, which is you know, uh, you know, awarding or punishing with, uh, taxation, you know, certain kinds of behavior. So, you know, in the United States, uh, you, you know, have tax deductions and, uh, you know, your children are tax deductions. You know, I'm yep. at a stage of life where the kids are not around anymore. And I, so I can't take those tax can't get those out. anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I need kids back. I need kids back. Now, what's interesting is the language that
1: they use. I haven't heard this recently, but a few years ago, they were talking about um, the federal government subsidizing you through deductions yeah, right. So it isn't fair that people with children get a government subsidy. Right. Yeah. Now, the implication of that is that the money that you earn is the government's.
0: Right. Yeah. You
1: know, that, yeah. that that's the hidden assumption there. But,
0: you know, the language itself just demonstrates the hostility. Yeah. yeah. And you saw it, you know, with Obama and his uh, sort of offhanded reference, you didn't believe that. In other words, this is something that. Was yeah. created, you know, by the government, and you just had the privilege of being part of our grand whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, I think that you know, there are other ways uh, to encourage the good. Um, you know, Plato famously noted uh, that what is honored in a country is practiced there. So, you know, when we think about uh, what we honor, I, I deal with this uh, a, a lot in, in marital counseling. We, uh, I'm dealing with the whole matter of, uh, what our larger, uh, you know, social environment honors and what God honors, and they're not, they're not the same things. So, you know, the larger social environment, particularly for women, uh, today you are honored if you are very ambitious, if you, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, pursue an education, if you, uh, you know, become, you know, financially independent, uh, and, uh, the costs in terms of, you know, fertility, uh, you know, getting married, long-term happiness, well, too bad, you know, that, that's not something, that's, those aren't things that are, are given much time or uh, analysis. Uh, if you want those things, fine, you know, that you're assured, many women are assured you can have it all, but in fact uh women often learn too late that they can't have it all they have to make some either or choices and 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 so we are seeing in our culture the results of what you know uh you know how women are honored women are honored for certain things and that's why they're doing those things and when it comes to men there really is uh a kind of a litany of things that are dishonorable, you know. Uh, there, you know, there, there are these things that men are being discouraged from doing, or being, yeah. that are really out of accord with our with our natures. Just like, yeah. you know, uh, when it comes to women, women are uh, created by God to bear children. That's one of the things, biologically, anatomically, that is just undeniable. Nevertheless, our our friends in the academy would shriek at the very statement, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's just, and it's, just a, it's such a bizarre thing
2: to shriek at, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, right. I mean, really to, see, it, you get that detached from reality to where you shriek at something that is it's, such an obvious given for the whole, I mean, not just, not just human creatures. <laughs> well, right. you Tom, know, Tom, it's actually, <laughs> it's,
1: it's even worse than, than Chris is saying
2: here. Because it's not just
1: that that they don't just object to the idea that one of the things that women are made for is bearing children. They object to the idea that bearing children is limited to women.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we might we might see some uh, uterus transplants here in the next few years. The way things are going. But not by not in the way, the I elef- was... <laughs> not in the elephant kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah well this is an this uh, but this is an interesting pro, you know sort of uh, i guess inconsistency on the one hand we're told that we are merely animals right yeah and if yeah. we were merely animals and we behave in you know entirely in you know ways that are consistent with other animals in other words there yeah. are no transgender elephants that i'm aware of uh but uh, that doesn't seem to carry over uh because again people think that i think gnostically that our spirits sort of Hover over the over the waters and create form yeah. out of nothing. But well, but I, and, but, and but,
1: but again, th- if you look at animals, what's the the imperative that drives a lot of animal
0: behavior? It's reproduction, right? Yeah, right. And this is where again, you know, we get some curious uh, bedfellows. At you know, um, because w- when it comes to materialists, the people who make the best argument for kind of traditional values sometimes are the social Darwinists, the people who say, you know, this is what men are for, this is what women are for, and if, they, and if we don't kind of move in the grooves, the natural grooves, we're not going to have anybody to replace us someday. <laughs> and, and, but anyway, uh, I, think, I think you can see where I'm going with this. So I think that there's, a, there's kind of a, you know, when we think about why people do the things they do, Yes, there is the reward that you know is fiscal or monetary in nature. But there's also uh the fact that I think that we are honor-seeking creatures. You know, we are we're people who want to do this is what self-righteousness is all about. This is what uh you know, a democracy uh has how it functions, you know, people who, you know, uh tried to, to uh live honorably so they could be honored by their fellows. That's that that's still a very strong social force in our world today. Uh, people doing things for approval, and and when you when I talk to young women, when I talk to young men, uh, they they have a, a very difficult time reconciling um, these two things: what they what they really kind of want at a deep level, um, and what the society is is uh, encouraging encouraging them to do or not do. And uh, that's a whole other matter, and this is one of the things, of course, that, that Rod gets into in his book, The Benedict Option, when he talks about the need for, you know, communities that can provide the environments within which, you know, uh, you know, people can live Christianly in the world. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting to the point where we should wrap things up. We've gone, I think, probably about as long as we should. But uh, anything you guys want to say as we wrap up?
2: Um, uh, yeah, one last point on what you just said. I, I think it's very interesting you mentioned the fact that we, we kind of have this, this kind of desire as, as human creatures oftentimes to, to be honored or, or to, to push things, to transcend our, the limits of our, our, our circumstances in some way. And I think, I think what this does is it, it gives us a glimpse into the broken image of God that needs restoration and redemption. Um, that is, we are made to be sons and daughters of God, and so even in everything else, we are as human creatures and uh, being husbands and wives, having children, sustaining that life, and then pushing culture and society. All these things are tied um, in a way towards this, you know, becoming glorified eventually in in union with with the Triune God. But for Christianity, they're not. They they don't have to work. or be split apart they don't have to work apart or be split apart that you can be be working towards the honorable and the good and the and the beautiful and glorification all the while carrying out that beautiful gift of relationships form and order that we were created to indwell um and without having to to um, run and make an idol out of being honored in some way that you have to basically chase honor and throw your family under the bus. Right. Um, so, so I think these things can be held together in the right proportion, um, without having to go to the extremes that have done serious damage
0: to the, to the world. Right. Right. Anything you want to
2: say, Glenn?
1: Yeah, I, I I'm looking at this just in terms of attitudes toward time. Um, you know the overwhelming focus on what's good for me right now, the destruction of the past, the complete lack of concern of what this will mean for future generations, unless it's rhetorically useful. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm what I'm struck by there is that you know when you compare this to Christianity, and I'm using that in the broadest sense of the word, you do have Jesus saying, "Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will take care of itself." On the other hand, a lot of the New Testament is really it is really put in terms, and actually Old Testament as well, in terms of future hope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, that gets distorted in certain forms of premillennial eschatology that says basically it doesn't matter, the world's all going to burn anyway. <laughs> uh, the same people who do that, by the way, also destroy the past. They completely ignore church history and everything else. Uh, the only thing that they're interested in typically is the Bible and frequently mostly the New Testament, not much of the Old Testament. And usually just a few doctrines
0: related to rapture and stuff like that.
1: And and, (laughs) and (laughs) what what, what I'm struck by (laughs) is, although it's in a totally different context and has totally different um, implications, uh, the, the connection between the overwhelmingly presentist bias of the culture and that particular subsection of evangelicalism, they really share an attitude toward time and culture that's remarkably similar, even yeah, though they go in totally different directions politically.
0: Yeah, I think that's really a great observation, Glenn. I, and I think uh, one of the things that maybe we should use as a, I don't know, a divining rod in terms of getting off track is, is that sort of thing. Is this particular... Um, Theological development uh, too comfortable with certain destructive ca- sort of trends uh, uh, trends within our larger culture. That's a that's a I think something that happens at all you know levels of uh, sophistication and class life and stuff like that. Um, you know I particularly think that a lot of this stuff finds uh, a home in you know upper middle-class and upper-class churches with regard to the LGBTQ stuff. You know, Um, they're very much, uh, you know, you know, very much working. Those folks are working really hard to, to uh, kind of accommodate or make Christianity uh, fit into the, these uh, modern trends. But anyway, um, we've talked a lot. (laughs) We should probably, we should probably wrap it up. Uh, we really do appreciate you listening to the theology podcast. Uh, by the way, I'm going to be getting on a jet plane on Monday to fly back to Connecticut, and we're going to be doing a number of live shows back uh, there. And uh, we we probably get we'll get together at least two times, maybe more. And um, what we'll do is when we know um, what we're what we're doing and where we're meeting and, and so forth, we'll put those uh, we'll put the information up on the uh, the Facebook page uh, for the podcast and uh, also maybe the Grumblers. Uh, those are the two places where folks <laughs> who listen to the show seem to hang out. And if you're in the area, if you're in central Connecticut and you would like to be uh, you know, in the live audience and join us for, for that and enjoy some beer with us and some food, uh, that'd be great. By the way, I saw that artisanal burger where we uh, have recorded the show in the past was rated the number one burger place in Connecticut, that very restaurant that we were in. So anyway, Ah. so you can get a great burger there. (laughs) But that's enough for now. Uh, Thanks again, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. bye now.